This morning we're continuing our series in Revelation, studying the seven letters that were written to the seven churches. I almost uh, was going to make this series all about the Mariners because I stayed up all night watching their 18th in, 18 inning game just to watch them lose. Yeah, it was painful, but thankfully God was still able to give me a message. Um, Today, what we're going to do is we're going to actually study the first letter to the first church. Now, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about Jesus Christ, who is the author of these letters, written through John. And we studied this for two weeks because that's the purpose of Revelation, to reveal Jesus Christ in all of his fullness, in all of his glory, because that's what you and I need the most. We need to understand who Jesus is, not just as the lamb who was slain, not just as the, uh, the Savior who was risen from the grave, but as the coming King. Because when you see Jesus as the coming King, it changes how you see things. You begin to live in the present, looking at all the things around you through the lens of the future. And it changes how you live your life. And I believe that is what God wants for you out of Revelation. It's not just the communication of prophetic information it's to bring life transformation to both me and to you. And that is what I'm praying as we cover this series over a few months is what will happen. So after these first two weeks of studying Christ, now we get to the first letter in Ephesus. And we're going to read through it. We're going to answer some questions. And then we're going to see what the Lord may be speaking to you and to me through what he speaks to Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now before we get to the meat of this message, I want to explain a few things that you may wonder about. Questions I've had myself in the past when first studying Revelation. This first letter... Actually, all the letters are addressed to the angel. This one, the angel of the church in Ephesus. And so when you read this, you automatically wonder, does this mean that every church has an angel that oversees it? Because that kind of seems cool if it does, right? I'd also say that if that's the case, there's some angels who really need to get their butt in gear because there's some churches that are struggling. Unfortunately, nobody knows for sure what John meant when he wrote the word angel. Angel could have meant like an actual angel, like we discussed when we went through our series in June. It could have also meant a messenger, 
like the pastor, an elder, or a member of the church who would take the letter to the church. Now, the Greek here, angelos, the word angel in our English, it has two meanings. It means angel, but more often than not, it means messenger. So it makes you think, it's a messenger. However, the difficulty with that is angelos is used in Revelation, if I remember, 40 to 50 times. And without exception, it means angel. So in the end, we don't really know. The good thing is we don't have to know because it it doesn't change how we read or respond to this letter. And we'll find out one day. Now, in these first seven verses, these first verses, he also mentioned stars and lampstands. And you might remember last week that John explained this symbolism, that the seven stars equaled the seven angels or messengers. And the seven lampstands, anybody remember, equals the? That's right, the seven churches. So what are lampstands? Okay, are they like the Ikea lampstand, 20 bucks, put a light bulb in? What are they? I got a picture here so you can get an idea of it. The Old Testament lampstand was what would provide light in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the place that the Israelites worshipped when they were freed from slavery in Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness. Does anybody, uh, does this look familiar to anybody? What's it look like? Looks like a menorah. Fun fact, menorah and lampstand, basically the same thing. Jewish would call it, the Jewish people would call it a menorah, we would call it a lampstand. Now the the menorahs you see nowadays uh, have, they have I think eight or nine candlesticks. And that's because it's celebrating a specific event in Jewish history, the Maccabean Revolt, which you can read about on your own time. But this is, comes from the same place. So fun, fun Bible fact for next time you're playing Bible trivia. Now, if you are a student of the Old and New Testament, you will have come to know that many things that God does, if not everything that God does in the Old Testament, are there to point to a New Testament truth. So just as the light in the lampstand would provide light to all of the tabernacle, Christ would be the one who provides light to the world. As Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. So the churches now in this symbolism, they are the lampstands. They are carrying the light of Christ into the world. 1 Peter 2.9 It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a good reminder of the importance of the church. Far too many of us, we have a far too casual view of the church. The call of the church of every church throughout history, of Echo Lake Church, is to spread the light of Christ. May that be said of Echo Lake Church. Amen? Amen. All right, so now that we got through that symbolism, let's talk about where Ephesus was, where this church was, and it was in, obviously, Ephesus. And Ephesus used to be a really powerful political city in the Roman Empire. It had a huge, huge harbor, Brought in all the cruise ships, Disney, Royal Caribbean, they all came through, right? It was a massive market of trade. 
At one point, at its highest point, they estimated it had anywhere between 250 and 500,000 people that lived there. Now, I actually have a picture you can see of the ruins. Now, you can still go to visit the ruins. Have you been there, Sue? Where have you not been? Jeez. But it's no longer a city, obviously. It declined, I think, after the 5th century. And then when the Turks invaded, I think around the 14th century, they took the remaining inhabitants and they jetted out of town. And the harbor is not even there anymore because all the silt built up, one of the reasons that led to its demise. But she still can go there. But at its peak in this town was a church that was planted around 80, 80, 50, 52 AD, which about 20 years after Christ's death and resurrection. And it was a, as you can read, I think in Acts 19 or 20, it was a home base for evangelistic efforts in the area. It was originally pastored by Paul, and then by the Apostle John. Imagine being the guy that had to follow up those two dudes. <laughs> Big shoes to fill. So the church is in Ephesus, and it's in a tough setting. There was a large Jewish population there, and they did not take kindly to Christians. And Ephesus was known for its practice of magic and its worship of Artemis, or in the Roman culture, Diana, who was the Greek goddess of, of nature, Childbirth, wildlife, the moon, the hunt, sudden death, animals, virginity, young women, and archery. She had a lot to oversee. And she needed delegates and some other, that's a lot. In fact, the temple of Diana was there and the ruins are still there. Which was considered at the time one of the seven wonders of the world. So you can imagine with them worshiping the goddess Diana, who was the goddess of young women and, and childbirth, and you mix that with all the sailors that were coming into town. This was a place in a city and with the magic of sin and debauchery. And right stuck in the middle of it was the church of Ephesus. And among all of this culture that they were in, Christ says, look, I see your good works. I see what you're doing. You know, and, I, and, I, and this is not the focus of our message, but I want to pause here. I thought this is a good reminder that if you ever feel like you're working and serving in the church and you're not appreciated or no one sees what you're doing, rest assured that Jesus Christ, he sees it all. He walks among the churches. He sees your work. He sees your efforts. It's also a good reminder that people need, to, people need encouragement, Right? They need to know that they're doing a good job. And so it was a reminder to me that if you see someone doing a good job, take the time to tell them that they're doing a good job. It's always in our nature to only notice people serving when they do something wrong. <laughs> like the sound guy, who only ever gets looked at when the sound goes off, right? Right? And it's even worse because we brought them right out here into the center. He can't hide anymore. Parents, when you pick up your kids from your teachers, those teachers who work so hard without any fanfare, tell them thank you for teaching their children the time that they put in. All the positions in this church, thank people when you see them doing something well. Amen, church? So he encourages them. And what does he encourage them for? Their, their work, their patient endurance. They're not bearing with those who are evil. They hated the Nicolaitans, which we, we don't know who those dudes were, but whatever they were up to was no good. 
They were calling out people who were pretending to be apostles, leaders in the church. And, and they had no problem making sure that false doctrine didn't slip into the church. Man, and, and I hope if King Jesus were to write about Echo Lake Church, he'd say the same thing. We need to sin. We need just as much back then to be diligent about protecting God's word as they were. Paul warned about this all the way back in Acts. Acts 20 through, 29 through 31. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, among your own selves, will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Times have changed. The setting has changed. But we still have the same problem. People coming into our lives to draw us away from the truth. Now a lot of it today in this entertainment culture, it comes through TV and radio and YouTube. If these big pastors have these huge audiences. Now I'm not sure how many Christians watch it anymore. Not that every single thing on it is bad. But when I was growing up, TBN was big network. I tell you right now, I looked at the list of preachers that are on there, and about 75% of them we would never allow to step in this church because they either preach a half gospel or a false gospel. But you have to be discerning because it's so easy when someone has a big name or a big audience to just start listening. And if you don't know God's word or you're not discerning in nature, you can easily be tricked into learning false truths and start to believe them and carry them out in your life. Just because someone, someone's friend posts a Facebook sermon clip, and all this sounds nice, it doesn't mean it's true. We have to be discerning like the Ephesus church. And just because they write tons of books, it doesn't make them a good teacher of God's word. And I usually don't go out of my way to mention people's names. Maybe I should more, but I had someone specifically ask me about this person earlier in the week. You take somebody like Joel Olstein, who's written 20 books. I guarantee if I had an option to burn, I'd probably burn all 20. He would never step in this church to preach. Because he either preaches a false gospel or half the gospel, or he doesn't preach sin. He doesn't make the focus on God's glory. I would never let him step into this church. You have to be discerning. Do what they say line up with God's word. But this takes a lot of work. It is not easy. Because some of these preachers, they'll say things so smooth and it sounds so good. You're just like, oh, I want to take that. I want to accept that. But you have to dig in. You have to be willing. And this, I mean, this is why I appreciate our small group leaders in our church like, they work so hard to make sure not, like every study that we do, they don't just pick it out of the air, right? They don't put a bunch of names in a hat and just grab one. They don't look at the one that has the most stars, you know, on Amazon. They work hard to make sure that, that they bring you studies that are firmly rooted in God's word. And I'm thankful for it. So he says, man, you guys have been diligent. You've stuck to it. You've been steadfast. But then Jesus switches gears. 
You ever been in a conversation when someone's like praising you, telling you a good job, and you're like, you're doing wonderful, and you're like, thank you, thank you, and then they're like, but, and then everything just, that's kind of what Jesus does. He says this in verse four of Revelation chapter two. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, I don't, Jesus must have been listening to the righteous brothers when he wrote this because he's like, you have lost that love and feeling, right? Some of you are like, who's the righteous brothers? But this is a great reminder that you, you can do all the right things and have the wrong heart. So what does it mean to lose? What does it mean rather to abandon your first love? Well, it, it's not abundantly clear. Now, it could have meant that they lost their love for Jesus. Man, have you ever met some people where either they find Jesus later in life or maybe they grew up in the church but they never clicked until a certain point and, and, and then it's like one day they found him and, and they're excited and, and they're fervent and they're like uninhibited and they're like go up and talk to anybody and, and you see this excitement. It's almost like, it's like a honeymoon love where you see a husband and wife when they first get married and they're lovey-dovey and you know, they're cuddling everywhere and it makes you want to puke, right? You know, it's just like, okay, stop, right? There's so much enthusiasm in somebody when they first find Christ, a passion inside them. Even if they don't necessarily display it on the outside because we're all different personalities, there's this passion for the Lord. Well, it's possible that Ephesus had this and they lost that affection for Christ. It could also meant that they, they lost their love for one another. Which is different because when, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians, same Ephesians, he said this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So they had love at one point, but something has possibly been lost in their love for each other. It could also mean they, lost, they left their, their, their love for the lost. They abandoned their love for the lost. I heard a preacher refer to someone like this who has the, theology that is clear as ice and it's just as cold. That they knew truth, but the way they delivered it was cold as ice without the warmth and the love of Christ. Maybe that was a description of the Ephesians. Their devotion for Christ had just turned into duty. They had all the motions, but they had lost the emotion for the Lord. They fell into a rut. I'm curious, does any of this describe you? In your walk with the Lord, have you, have you lost, have you abandoned that love at some point? And in fact, I, and, I, and I talk to sometimes non-Christians and they'll tell me, and this is never an excuse for not finding Christ, but sometimes they genuinely say, like, I meet Christians and they're just, they're, they're cold, horrible, mean people. And I say it's probably because they lost their love for the Lord. Because when you read what a, a, a Christian should be like, standing for truth and delivering it strongly and boldly, but with love and with grace, and you see some Christians today, the only answer I have is that they've lost that love. And it's a great reminder for all of us, especially you've been in the church a long time, you should be constantly concerned about the condition of your own heart. 
You should be constantly looking in every situation, especially when you feel uh, towards people and bitterness and coldness, you should be looking in the mirror immediately at the condition of your heart. Because it's not like something that just happens overnight. It's usually a case, in my experience, of a time of slowly slipping away from the Lord, of the things that you did at first, of the affections of the Lord that you had at first. You can be on the great shape outside. You can be doing all the Christian-y things, giving and tending and serving, going to Bible study, and still be broken on the inside, still have left that love for the Lord. I pray, I've been praying for the last several days, that wherever this is true in any of our lives, the Lord would show us and we would see and respond. Amen, church? So Jesus gives this warning. He says, remember from where you have fallen, Repent. And do the works that you did at first. And if not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a scary word of warning. It says if you're doctrinally correct, if you're beating your chest and boldly enduring in truth, but you have no affection for the Lord, no love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. No love for the lost. He goes, I'll pull your lampstand. That frightens me. Because God says, I have no problem shutting things down. I have no problem removing the power of my Holy Spirit. And we see lots of churches that have shut down. Lots of places that have grown cold. and their lampstamp has been removed. Doesn't mean that God doesn't continue to do his work. He'll just do it somewhere else. This is what happened to Ephesus. And it will happen to us as a church and as believers if we're not humble enough to check our hearts. King Jesus says you need to remember. You need to remember what it used to be like and if you've been a Christian for a while, you all have these times in your life where, man, Jesus just feels so much more real, right? And, and it's usually when something new happens, maybe when you just first found him, like you just, your eyes are first to open, and you're like, just, ah, oh, you're so excited. You know, or there's times where you get into church, and you find a family, and you're just, it's so real. Or like one of the first times where Christ used you to bring somebody else to him, and it's just, there's just no better feeling. King Jesus says, you need to get back to this. He says, you've forgotten the excitement that you had, the, uh, the difference that you used to make, the determination, the, the compassion. You forgot it. You've let it slip. That's the bad news. The good news, the scripture tells us that even when we're faithless, he is, anybody? He's faithful, Right? He doesn't say, look, you're done, you're fired, you're out. He says, you need to remember and repent. He said, here's my compassion and my grace and my patience to give you an opportunity to turn back to me. And that's what I love about the Lord. He never shuts us down. He never cancels us. He says, he comes, he convicts us through his word and through his spirit and gives us an opportunity to repent. That means to change our ways. He says, you need to get back to that love that you had at first. 
What's Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? He goes, if I give away everything that I have, everything that I have, that if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I've gained nothing. Nothing. I cannot say this enough. I implore you this morning to ask the Lord, Father, where have I lost that first love? If there is any place in me, show me. Make me see it. Make me hear it. Don't make me miss it. And for some of you, you're like, I don't even remember a time where I had that first love. Or maybe you haven't had it. Your prayer would be, Lord, show me how to find that in you. And he'll answer your prayer. In fact, he'll answer it right now. Because if you don't say that prayer, some of the things I'm going to talk about for a minute are so basic, you are going to tune out. You're going to be done. I've heard this before. And you're gone. You're checked. Even though you don't practice it in your life. Because that's our temptation when we're hearing sermons, right? We've heard it a hundred times. Well, I've heard this before. Maybe you're a better Christian than I am, but I do. I'll be tempted to check out. But it doesn't matter how much you know or how many times you've heard something out of God's word if you do not apply it in your life. Amen, church? John says you need to go back and repeat what you did before. And some of the, that, some, for some of you, that means getting back to the feet of Jesus. You know, I mentioned a honeymoon couple earlier. A lot of the couples that struggle or lost that love is because they stopped doing the things that they did at first. And one of the ways that they regain that love is by going back and doing the things that they did at first. When they got on dates together and they serve each other in little ways around the house, they call each other or text each other and pray for each other, get each other little gifts. They actually sit down and listen to each other. They make time for each other. I've been counseling marriages for so long now, 18, 20 years. And it's true in my marriage, when we go back and do the things that brought us love in the first place, it's where we return. We start to regain that part of our relationship. And when we don't, it's mechanical. We're two parents living in a house trying to raise and love our kids and, and, and take care of a home. We must return to those things. And in the same way, in our relationship with God, we have to return to those things that we first did. I mean, I read this earlier in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land, there is no water. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Let me ask you, do you still seek the Lord? Do you take time out of your day sacrificing something else, whether it's a few minutes of sleep or something else or your Facebook page or whatever, to actually sit in front of the Bible and read the words of God? Do you take time with God alone and pray and listen for him? Do you ever fast and go without food just to seek the Lord for a short time? Do you fill up your home and your car with worship music 
Do you ever memorize scripture that it may be close in your heart that you may call upon it in times of trouble? These are the things that we do to seek the Lord. The problem is, in our, we have to rush through busy lifestyle that we have in this American culture with so many distractions. We make these things secondary and they are not priority. Whatever you give your time to, that is what you're giving your affections to. That's what you're going to grow close to. And it's true for me as a pastor. When I stop and I pray and I seek the Lord, when I come in here at 5.30 in the morning, I spend a half an hour just praying and seeking him during the week when I'm opening up his word, his, his, his life and his glory are so much more real to me, not as a pastor, but just as a sinner saved by his grace. And when I don't, I just get in a rut like I'm going through the motions, like I'm just doing my duty. I trust it's the same for all of us. Where do you need to return to seeking the Lord? I pray you see it right now. That you'll make a change. You will make it priority. You will not wait. You'll not be like, oh, that's a good idea. I should do that. No, you say, no, this is the change I'm making now, and it becomes priority in your life. Where do we need to return to love and how we love one another? Because when you seek the Lord and you seek his face and you're reminded of his compassion, his love, and his glory for you, it's so much easier for you to return that glory, that compassion, and that love, and that grace to other people. Colossians 3.12, he says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The only way you can do that is when you are experiencing it and being reminded of how you've been giving these things from the Lord. And I wonder, I just wonder, how much did Ephesus just lose its passion, compassion for each other? Like when somebody got something wrong in Scripture, there was no grace. Or when somebody would be in a small group and open up about their lives, others would look down on them. You know, part of our plan for people becoming disciples here at Echo Lake for learning God's hope, we use this phrase that we want to grow in truth together. And that means that we realize we're all in different places. Some places I'm, I struggle less than some of you. Some places I struggle more than some of you. Like, and it's true for all of us. And so there's this grace and there's this compassion and we have this desire to help each other grow. We're a church where it's safe to make mistakes or where it's safe to get things wrong to not know the answer to certain things. Oh, I pray that we would be a church that would be so patient with each other. So patient with each other because of how God is patient with us. That we would fulfill 1 John 13 where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, just as I have loved you, you also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love, agape, for one another. And I'm really proud of the leaders in our church as I've seen them come along, disputes and struggles between people, how they have guided them towards truth and love, how they're not afraid to call them and talk to them and text them. We planned that. Ah, oh, that we have this love for each other. 
You know what? And that we have love for the lost. I, in my experience, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but my experience in the last six years, I have noticed more and more Christians becoming hardened to the lost. And mostly it's because of politics. Because we get more passionate about politics than we get passionate about the gospel. And we let our fear of politics override our faith in the coming king. And so we get bitter with people. And we get cold with people. As if somehow we are better than they are. We would never say that. That's how we act because there's no compassion. There's no patience. And I, and I just pray that wherever I am, I have cooled my heart, or have you cooled your heart towards those in your life that are lost, that the Lord would just give you tender skin on your heart. Keith Green, he sang this once. He sang this. He said, I've been praying that God would give me baby skin on my heart because I've become too rough. That we'd be some soft towards the lost. That we would see them not as the enemy, but know that there's only one enemy. And it's our role to help shine the love of Christ to help save them. And let me tell you, there is, in my opinion, there is nothing like that will bring you the joy that will return the love of Christ to you when you reach out to people for Jesus' name. Even if they don't respond, the fact they're like, God used me to, to invite that person or to pray for that person, man, it fills you up with such a joy and excitement, it rips all the hardness away. Nothing better. If you ain't tried it, I encourage you to go do it. Like I said, wherever in your life, wherever in my life, we've abandoned that love for whatever reason, I pray that we would feel that conviction today. Not condemnation, that's the devil. We'd feel conviction and would cause us to look back to the Lord and say, Lord, I am sorry that I've abandoned your love. Help me to return. Give me strength to return and help me to see it, knowing that he will. And then return to the acts of love that you did at first, the acts of growing close to your Savior, the acts of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, the acts of compassion and love for those who are lost. Doesn't mean you don't preach truth to them. Don't fall for that trap. Sometimes love is telling them what they need to hear even though they don't like it, but telling it in a way where there's love, there's grace, and there's mercy, and there's patience. Amen, church?